Welcome to The C Word, the Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about communicating conservation. I'm Jenna Mathiason, an objects conservator based in South Yorkshire. I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservator based in Greater Manchester. And I'm Christina Rizek, an objects conservator based in Cambridgeshire. Does anyone have any news? I've got some news which is related to today's topic. Uh, which is that Icon are doing some professional development, uh, a professional development course in February next year, which is media training and how to do PR. So if you've been inspired by listening to today's podcast (laughs) to kind of get out there and put conservation in the news and stuff um, and you want some training on how to do it, then go on this course. Um, It's on the 28th of February, Wednesday 28th of February from 9.45 till 5pm and it's in East London. Brilliant. Oh, that's really good. Uh, and you can find the details on the Icon website, but we'll put them in the show notes as well. Yes, yes, we will. Hey, amazing. That's... And I've got some other news, which is that I've got a new job. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Just after Chloe's got a new job. Yay! <laughs> I have as well. <laughs> hey, all those short-term contracts, we'll probably all be getting new jobs all the time. But So it's a one-year contract. <laughs> So hopefully get a similar announcement this time next year from me. Oh. But um, yeah, I'm going to be an ethnographics conservator working on Pacific collections, which I'm really looking forward to. Congratulations. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. We knew about this already, obviously. Yeah, yeah. We, we, yeah, well. <laughs> but but we, we're still congratu- congratulating you officially yeah, live, now. On live, on live, on what on On air air. (laughs) on air yeah official congratulations (laughs) i think by the time this episode goes out i will have started but (laughs) yeah no yeah true yeah (laughs) excellent news so i don't know if we mentioned this this is kind of old news by now uh, i guess but uh icon has launched a strategy i don't know if we talked about that before Mm. but they have launched their new strategy document which has an emphasis on advocacy for example speaking of communicating conservation I was going to say, uh, the Museums Association just released uh, its new salary guidelines. Uh, and Ooh. these are, this is basically a kind of, it's kind of a stock taking of the sector. And it has kind of, if you, well, I suppose it has minimum, median, and not maximum. There's no max, there's no maximum <laughs> to be paid. But basically, they've, they've gathered a lot of data and uh, they've, They've compiled these guidelines so people know roughly what people are being paid, which is a great idea. So there's a lot of research that's gone into this. And uh, basically what came out of it was that people in museums are paid 7% below the market average. Shocker. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think any of us would have guessed that. Well, yeah, quite. In particular, junior roles are significantly behind uh, (laughs) roles, uh, comparative roles outside the sector. Assistants in the curator and collections management job area lag 25% behind. Uh, while assistants and officers in learning, programming and outreach lag 13% behind competitors. And that's nice. That, that's pretty bad. Um, yeah. I mean, it's not something that we're necessarily surprised by. I think the general uh, reception of this piece of news was, well, we're not surprised, but what are we going to do about it? But I guess these guidelines are kind of aiming to give an accurate picture of what people are being paid and encouraging employers to Please, for the love of Christ, go for the higher bands. Can we not yeah. always, always put people on the lowest bands? <laughs> Jenny can see my pursed lips of annoyances. <laughs> I can indeed. Anyway, I, I thought I'd, I'd just bring up the salary ranges for conservators. They have they've published a very nice uh, little booklet or report on this, which is PDF downloadable. So we'll bring a link to that in the show notes. And basically, for conservators, first it defines what a conservator is, and then it says, notably, our research suggests that many museums are paying entry-level conservators at rates far below the minimum salary suggested by Icon. And that's not exactly shocking news. So if you go into salary ranges, it says that assistance, the lower quartile is 17,829. And the upper quartile is 23 grand, basically. Okay. All Um, of which is below Icon's minimum salary recommendations. Very, very much. And if you're an officer or coordinator or basically someone who's just called a conservator, like someone who's kind of then the range is between 25 and 29 with a median of about 
27. They've compared it to other sectors where the median is about 31 grand. Oh my God. So that's, for example, local government surveyors, that sort mm-hmm. of thing. So they are, sim- they should be similar pay grade. Yeah. And that, that to me is really interesting. I've not paid anyone near that, I can tell you. Nowhere no. near. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and then we've got team leaders and supervisors, so people who are senior conservators, principal conservators, that sort of thing. Uh, that's uh, the pay grade there is between thirty and thirty-seven, with a median of thirty-three. I'm just thinking, Maybe wow, in you, London, wow, you I lucky. B- uh, <laughs> Maybe in London, but then they've got to live in London. So. Yeah, yeah, quite. I think one of the problems with splitting it into assistant conservator and senior conservator is that. Actually, most museums don't have more than one or maybe two conservators. And so there's nowhere for you to go in terms of progression. So you might be stuck on your £25,000 conservator salary for 20 years, potentially, because you're never going to make senior conservator because there isn't a job called senior conservator in your museum if you are the only conservator. So that's that's also another issue is progression for mid-career and senior conservators is often non-existent. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And good luck to anyone asking for a raise after 15 years. (laughs) (laughs) Just to put this into context, Jenny, when you were saying about the um, salaries for entry-level conservators, you were saying the upper quartile, the top quartile is 23,000, is that right? Yeah, actually 23,338 pounds to be precise. So to put that into context, Icon recommends that the minimum salary for entry-level conservators should be £24,648 a year. Yeah. So pretty much all of those jobs fail to meet Yeah, exactly. That's an entire pay bracket (laughs) Mm. outside of that entirely. It's kind of staggering. I'd be interested to know whether museums are more more ready to pay a lower amount for entry-level conservators because of the, I suppose, the high demand for jobs and the well, I mean, experience and I mean, the perception of what museums need over what can be provided by recently graduated. I mean, it is, is it would do slightly suffer from this where there are a lot of people applying. So basically, even if you pay someone salary, you're still going to get someone taking the yeah. job. Yeah, so be, be grateful for it. Yeah, yeah. that 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 is a problem in and of itself so obviously people get away with it that's kind of why we're why we have people being paid 17 grand it we do suffer from, from that as an industry and it's something they do address in this kind of general document that obviously this sort of thing is a problem and we need to address it and we yeah again this is just a snapshot of what what's happening now but it's making people aware and if we have this document, then we can at least advocate for change rather than go, we think we're probably being paid too little. And now here it is, like a kind of black on white. And that's mm. also important for advocacy, if you think about it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, by the way, there's an even higher level of conservator, which is manager or head of. And those people range between 36 and 54 grand with a huh. median of 44. Lucky people. Example, examples there are conservation and programming manager of Glasgow Life head of conservation museum of london that sort of thing so it's mm-hmm. again it's kind of people in really big institutions mm. in really big places yeah but, but to be fair you'd be managing dozens of people there potentially and yeah. so even that's not remotely comparable with anything elsewhere commercially yeah. with an equivalent exactly. amount of responsibility so so even though by conservation standards that sounds pretty great but um <laughs> it's still not particularly comparable for the amount of skills experience yeah. and responsibility yeah, that are demanded i suppose it were also need to be conscious not to feel sort of jealous of the people who are paid that much or or sort of resentful well i don't get paid that much kind of attitude because you know that's dangerous yeah because then that sort of that kind of increases the number of voices saying that conservatives shouldn't be paid that much which i I, I doubt anyone in conservation actually believes that we shouldn't be paid as much as we are because that would be insanity but yeah but i think this is also i mean now we really are talking about communicating conservation here because we also need to change this weird image that we're overpaid cleaners which we're yeah. not first of all we're not overpaid and secondly we're not cleaners uh not that there's anything wrong with being a cleaner i'm just saying we do a mm-hmm. lot more and we have scientific backgrounds usually or you know crafts backgrounds or you know something we're specialists it's kind of atrocious that we're not being paid for but hey basically i just want to highlight that there is now a document by the Museum Association that contains salary guidelines and that's awesome and it doesn't really say anything new but it does confirm things that we suspected and I think that's it for new. So today we're going to talk communicating conservation. Who wants to start? (laughs) 
Well, I'm interested in what we're including in this because I was thinking about, all right, what what can I what can I offer? What am I interested in in this in this topic of outreach? And I was thinking about my museum and the work that I'm doing in terms of writing labels that I'll talk about later. And I did this huge bit of writing and then I realized I'd totally forgotten about the news outreach that I'd done earlier in the year. <laughs> what, you yeah. went on you were TV. In all the news. I went on TV. Um, and then when we were talking about it just before recording, you were talking about, Christina, you were talking about, oh, in the news and how conservatives get in the news. And I remember thinking, oh, no, I don't think I've ever been in the, oh, well, yeah, been in the news. <laughs> so I have a couple of things to, to talk about. Well, I mean, uh, personally, I've made the local newspaper as a kind of a, Ooh. as a kind of a tiny, hey, there's a conservation studio in Rotherham now. Oh, yeah. You know, that's, that's advertisement kind yeah, of thing. Well, yeah. It's, yeah, it's kind of just kind of raising awareness, I guess, yeah. uh, with an adorable picture of me in an apron. Oh, <laughs> is there any so, other picture of you in an apron? <laughs> <laughs> How did that come about, Jenny? Who made the, who, who told the newspaper that this was happening? basically everything because i work in a local authority everything has to go through the press office so the press office will release a press release and at that point i get you know emailed a few questions maybe and like it's not actually even meeting face to face it's more providing information really uh, if anyone is interested in the press release so that, that's kind of how everything works there so it was more of a general thing because we were launching this commercial unit then uh, they sent out a press release and a local newspaper picked it up and that, that's kind of it it's not like anyone was amazingly thrilled and came into the museum with a big microphone in my face or anything that none of that happened uh, it was all very sedate that's it that is all the media stuff i've <laughs> I've done in in, uh, but, in terms of being accepted, but I'm I'm I mean it's good that they felt that this was worth a press release. I suppose I mean which obviously it is, but it is also good that 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 kind of story is not just getting buried. Yeah, that's true. Um, and that somebody wanted to come and take a, an adorable picture of you in an apron and so on. Yeah. So. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean that's that's kind of the the extent of my interaction with media as such. Now, Chloe, you have had quite a different journey. <laughs> well, it's funny because when um, when I set out the episode topics for season two, yeah, this had not this happened was, to you. This was Mayish. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. When we decided to do a second season, and we were doing on certain topics, and I was like, oh well, Christina knows more about this, and she's got all the experience, and she's done the, the proper reading. She this she. She can lead on this one um, <laughs> and I thought I'll just have to do some research <laughs> and now I've got all these scary stories so um <laughs> firstly I think it's fair to say I don't like being on camera I don't really like being interviewed it's terrifying and I hilariously don't like the sound of my voice <laughs> um, but recently as I probably I definitely have insinuated before the museum I work for um, recently acquired a amazing, an amazing object that um, was super important for next year and various various groups of people and the world. Um, and again, with the press release, I had no experience. I had didn't, I thought press releases were only in you know superhero films um, <laughs> and you know the government the press knew about it yeah. right uh-huh. it had gone out <laughs> and yeah. then uh, so yes. thankfully the museum I work for has uh, works with a PR agency mm. and they so they thank god dealt with it all so it wasn't you know <laughs> obviously it wouldn't be up to conservation anyway because we probably like I would don't know don't know how to do this yeah yeah and then requests came in and added up and so, added so this up. was like newspapers and stuff that were saying, hey, we want to do a Newspapers came in, local and national. The Getty came oh, in with cool. a photographer, which was really nice. At local TV, things like that. And, you know, with my, my colleague and I took turns in doing interviews about it. And obviously not everything made it in. But the thing that I was really excited about, you know, obviously I'd got over the the fear and the hatred of being on camera and actually thought, this is brilliant, was when I got the <laughs> chance to talk about actual conservation issues to the news that's cool um, northwest tonight northwest tonight and i was talking about light levels and monitoring environmental conditions and fading and damage and all of this nice. barely any of it got into the actual well yeah footage that's editing. <laughs> but to talk to 
to people about it was really really good and it was it it was interesting because I was thinking about language that I was using and trying to stop it being so dry try not to use words like lux levels and (laughs) yeah (laughs) environmentally stable and yeah yeah, quite (laughs) but it was really really interesting and then off the back of that something else that's been interesting from the point of view of being uh the conservation facilitation of object use by the media went down to the one show the other month uh week Oh yeah, she yeah. says that so yeah. so casually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, just uh, just the one show, just the one show. Um, well, it's I'm, I say it ca- casually because I thought for a brief time that myself and my colleague would have to be on TV, um, holding this object aloft to various Hillary Clinton to various <laughs> political figures, um, and I was terrified. So the, the the fact that we we just had to, um, yeah, the fact that what we had to do was safely mount it and discuss with. With, um, the tech team how to do that and you know set guidelines that weren't either too invasive to make them decide they didn't want to bother and not too lax to actually endanger the object in any way yeah that was a relief I wasn't on tv but it was a, it was an interesting an interesting thing to work with a team with the mind of I have to be careful what uh, we have to be careful what we ask for because we need it to be actually plausible, but we don't want to be endangering the object. Mm. I can't decide if we were more lenient than we would be for a loan because a loan in, a, in to another museum is a different type of arrangement. Also, it's a different time scale. I mean, yeah, presumably you went down and back on in one day. On one day, yeah. yeah. So it, it's a essentially a couple of hours. It's a bit like, um, yeah, it's, it's essentially a photo shoot. Yeah, it? yeah, yeah. I would say that the tech guys and everyone at the BBC actually was really, really open and happy to have us give them guidelines, basically, and Good. to give them rules and say, only we touch it, only we do this, only we do that. So I suppose, actually, if I was going to give any advice, it would be communicate well with the team that you're working with and get to a point where everyone's happy to facilitate what you need, as well as, you know, showing them that you're giving them as much as you can in terms of object use. Yeah, cool. Well, basically, you're a bit of a rock star in here right now. <laughs> I don't know about rock star. Uh, I, I mean, Christine, Christine I know that you've been on the radio because... Uh, obviously we had that clip in uh, episode two been on the radio a few times and local papers and I've been in the Guardian um, in, the, oh. in the awesomely titled article penises and caustic soda the case of the Cambridge antiquities um, oh that's amazing <laughs> that's so good that is the best article uh, to be in talking about um, somebody's restoration of a penis on a Greek drinking cup <laughs> so <laughs> So I am I am quoted and my favourite paragraph from this article. Sorry, I know this is about me, but my favourite paragraph in this article is according to conservator Christina Rizek, who has been working with the objects in the refurbished gallery, that penis will be the subject of much detective work over the next year, which apparently <laughs> I'm quoted as saying. <laughs> That's amazing. amazing. So, but it, it was actually a really good experience. I've I've had experiences of media interactions going a bit awry because one of the things you learn is that you can take as much care as you like over what you say and how you present things and the information you give people. But as soon as you've done that, you relinquish any control over it. Yeah. You have no control over what happens. And um, often deadlines are quite pressing and nobody's got the time to check stuff with you. And quite often people just put this stuff out. They don't They don't come back and check you're happy with it or that things are accurate or that they haven't completely misconstrued you or that they haven't massively sensationalised something and not focused on the conservation aspects. And so that that's one of the things that can be very hard is kind of going out there with the best of intentions and and having your words kind of not not twisted but decontextualized sometimes or misconstrued mm. um, and I think that's one of the really hard things this article I think was really good um, it, it, it was there as an example of something where we had an ancient object and then there were modern restorations on it and the restorations had been made we had documentary evidence that they'd been made by um, the person who collected the object who was himself quite a significant artist in his own right and it gave us this kind of dilemma about what do we do with these do we remove all of the overpainting or do we keep it because it's a really intimate part of that object's biography it um, it's very much bound up with how that object was collected and the person who owned it and his own work and his own interests and so on so 
I think the article surprisingly does quite a good job of conveying those sorts of complexities and is quite sympathetic. The thing that slightly killed me afterwards was the comments underneath it. (laughs) Oh no, never read the comments. (laughs) Yeah, no, I know. (laughs) And then me kind of, you know, like itching to to register and start hammering my keyboard and going, actually, (laughs) you know, defending myself. And again, that's another thing. Sometimes the only thing you can do is just kind of put stuff out there and then maintain a dignified silence rather than getting into some kind of spat with somebody who's taking issue with your notions of authenticity or whatever. So I, I found that I found that quite hard, actually, <laughs> the non-engagement, <laughs> but I did manage to restrain myself from that. So, so that, that's um, one of my questions actually for you today was, firstly, how did you find their, the interviewer's interest in bits of nuance like that? What did they... Did they did they arrive wanting just sort of almost juicy goss about an object or were they happy to think, oh, actually, yeah, this is the, the nuance of this is interesting? We had a meeting. So the, the project was actually carried out. Um, it was it was a joint. It was an, AI, an Arts and Humanities Research Council funded project. So it was a gallery refurbishment, but there was also this whole kind of research project tacked onto it. And the research project was being done with people in the classics faculty and the university as well and one of those people was an immensely experienced media person and she basically got us together for a meeting before we spoke to this journalist before her visit and said right we need to decide what we're going to talk about no that's not interesting that is that's got a hook that's newsworthy that isn't and and sort of licked us into shape to some extent so that that's we so had an idea beforehand what and I, th- I think that would have been very difficult without her experience she's she's one of these people who's often referred to as a media don and has got like hundreds of thousands of followers on twitter and is always on the news wow. and on um, whatever on question time and stuff so she she really knew what she was talking about there and it's it, it's quite galling sometimes when you think but this is really interesting and important conservation point and actually it just isn't sufficiently interesting to make the news that that's really hard but I think that helped very much and, and we ended up with quite a long piece which we might not have done if we hadn't been so careful about choosing things that were interesting to the media in the first place and then thinking quite hard about how we were going to present those things. I think we were also very lucky that the journalist who came to interview us was um, the Guardian's arts correspondent and was very sympathetic and is a very sort of thoughtful, nuanced person anyway. So um, I think we struck it lucky there. I've, I've spoken to other newspapers before and been considerably less lucky. So I think it also depends what the outlet is. I mean, you know, if you're talking, if you're talking to the Sun, you're going to get quite a different kind of (laughs) write-up from if you're talking to the Guardian's arts correspondent. You know, that's that's just the way it is as well. And can you tell when you're during the conversation how things are going? Can you tell? Oh, they're just not getting the idea. How do I rectify this? Or or, what? How do I? Do you feel, um, say, more doubtful if you're talking to people who just don't get it, or or is it more of a kind of nasty surprise? when the article comes out? As I said, I think the best thing you can do is do as much prep and advance about what your message is and stick to it and try and keep it really concise. But no, I, I, to some extent, all you're doing is, is putting it out there and hoping for the best, which is yeah. possibly a bit of a pessimistic conclusion. But <laughs> like I said, you, you don't you don't always get a lot of feedback at the time about how this is going and whether people are understanding your points or whether they're taking it on board and I suppose the thing to think I mean you know the cliche is that it's it's tomorrow's fish and chip wrappers you know it's 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 all essentially ephemeral it doesn't really matter one of the things to bear in mind is that you're just one of dozens and dozens of other stories that are going in there today and so from their point of view you're not actually that important this is this is your chance not to blow it but (laughs) but at the same time you're 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 basically not very important from their point of view it does have a yeah i get that point so from from their point of view absolutely but it the thing that frightened me when i was going through the sort of media storm process was that it's the it's not like you know your career hinges on what you say but it's more it does have implications to the conservator doesn't it because if if you say something that is either misconstrued or you know taken out context or whatever and that is seen by other conservation professionals though i'm sure that much of the community would understand that the, <laughs> that probably 
a lot of it's been taken out of context or that there are reasons for whatever misunderstanding or whatever. There is the worry that, you know, other conservatives will go, I can't believe she said that. You know. <laughs> I I kind of feel like there's there's no way conservatives have time to like fall through <laughs> media and go no I can't believe it. <laughs> no, but I suppose if, if I think I would I if I saw a newspaper or, a, or an interview with a conservator I'd go oh conservation's being oh what being the, what they're saying I suppose and we, then we kind of saw. Sort of, uh, I guess there's a certain solidarity yeah, in that we're yeah. like, oh, I'm so excited that. Yeah, absolutely. She's in the media. Yeah. Uh, and I'm interested in what you say, Christina, about having the PR person to guide you, because that's certainly how I felt myself with, with our PR team. But I, I do, I had a moment where I was, I felt very under pressure on in one in one case with just have just basically just not knowing what they wanted and the the information I got I, I didn't have PI support PR support at the time and the instructions I got was oh just just what, what what do you want just just unveil it just yeah ha- get get uh, it out unveil it that, that's, that's a bit vague <laughs> that's I a bit vague <laughs> and I was sort of I was kind of it sounds re- like they're not very good at communicating with you I want well, I mean I think obviously they didn't know. It's not their specialism. It's not their job to know what to do. And I think they no, were no, more expecting me to kind of but I, translate I appropriate think, behavior from that. And I was just I like, think, I don't know what's interesting. I don't know. I don't know what you want. What do you want from me? <laughs> but I think the problem is that they had something in their heads. That's and it. And they did not communicate that very yeah. well. Yeah. I mean, Ironically. You know, it would have been helpful for them to say what's actually playing out in yeah. their head. Like, yeah. I envisage that yeah, you will. That's it. That you will take it out of the box slowly and yeah, lay it out. Exactly. That would have been helpful exactly. as opposed to unveil. Yeah, so <laughs> I feel that I think even though um, I, I suppose that if you do a lot all at once, you can think, I am so fed up with being told what to do by these people <laughs> and ugh, they don't understand. But actually, the number of times I've done this sort of thing, the number of times I've worked as sort of facilitator of, of objects for artists in photo shoots and stuff, I've... I'm actually happier being told what they want, what people want and going, all right, I'm going to make this work or I'm going to, if it doesn't work, I'm going to find an alternative that's safe for the object. You know, being told what they actually want from me rather than... No, it's it's a two-way street. Yeah, it is exactly. Like, all parties yeah. need to communicate. Yeah. Nobody's a mind reader. I think that's interesting, Chloe, what you're saying about not knowing what's um, expected of you. I spoke to Myrna Lydon, who's um, a conservator at the National Gallery of Ireland recently, uh, about her experience of going on a media training course that was organised by the Irish Conservators Institute. And she talked through some of the sort of useful tips that she picked up and some of the ways that she was thinking differently about it. So let's listen to it now. My name is Myrna Lydon. I'm a paintings conservator here in the National Gallery of Ireland in Dublin. And I've been working here in the gallery about 10 years now at this point. You recently attended a media training course. Yeah, so this um, media uh, uh, training course came up from, it was offered from the Irish uh, Conservators and Restorers Institute. And it actually just piqued my interest when it originally came into my email because and I'm sure a lot of other conservators will probably agree, but you, you, you regularly are pulled up to do interviews, to do like podcasts such as this, to, uh, <laughs> to, um, from, from anything from conferences to, to giving short talks, to pop-up talks, to, you, I think as a conservator, you're, you're frequently called upon to, uh, talk about your work. And I was saying to a colleague of mine who was attending the training as well, even though I had done a lot of interviews, a lot of work with our website team here, a lot of presentations, I actually had very limited, in fact, no professional training in this area. So I thought it would be a really good opportunity to, to do that and just really update my skills and see if there's anything I can be improving upon. So with the course here in the gallery, I do a lot of work um, with our digital team. So we, we put a lot of our projects up online. This can be anything from 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 podcasts to blogs to short little videos of projects to in-depth uh, technical reports on bigger projects, let's say. So I wanted to kind of get more information and learn more about, say, some, some new available apps that might create a better profile for, for our projects online. 
Um, so that was why I was quite interested in attending the course. And then the other thing I wanted to address was things like how to be best prepared for public speaking and how to overcome nerves or, or that type of thing. What kind of things did the course cover then? So we had um, we had two two ladies from the digital media side who discussed the you know purpose of blogs, um, how to increase traffic to your part of the website how to get as much traffic you know call to action buttons with videos and um you know signing up to blogs or podcasts um and then they went through a lot of a lot of really good apps that I wasn't aware of at all in relation to easy easy ways to pull together things like time lapse videos of projects um oh wow yeah so quite good apps so some of the particularly good ones which I've had I've just looked at very briefly since the training there's apps called Snapseed and things like Canva and PicMonkey, which are particularly good for I think a lot of the time when you're doing stuff like blogs or, or websites, you're, you're caught up with the admin of it, like resizing images and that kind of thing it takes up a huge yeah. amount of our time. And um, so Canva and PicMonkey are just quick apps for resizing images and, and really quite useful. And then there's another good app, which I, I've just looked at this very briefly now since this workshop, uh, Splice, so S-P-L-I-C-E, which I thought was very good. And it creates professional looking uh, videos that you might have from uh, time lapse. You, know, you might take like a photo every day of a project that you're working on or maybe something you're painting, you're cleaning or an object you're cleaning or retouching. And then this app will pull together all of the photos at the end of the project to quite a nice nice good looking video that you can you can put up online so just really kind of handy practical tips and just actually I thought another thing they suggested just really really kind of obvious things that you might not always think of but also like to for conservators or a conservation team that might be working on projects to come together and develop a content calendar because that's one of the things that we have here in the gallery you know we might start a big project um that could go over you know one or two years and but Mm -hmm. And it started in great earnest, but then to kind of keep up the, the momentum and to keep keep up fresh content can be a challenge when you're busy actually doing the practical sides of the project. So things to from the get go to develop a content calendar and schedule, you know, will just help you ensure consistency of um, you know of good fresh input, and I suppose saves time ultimately sure. in the end. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then the second part of that was it was basically about public speaking and interviewing. Uh, and giving presentations and he dealt with just you know tips to to deal with if people were speaking too fast in interviews um how do tips like put a, a red sticker up at the top of your page which every time you look at it, it reminds you to breathe um, <laughs> which, is, which is always very helpful um things like to be careful about leading questions um you know the obvious ones if you're being interviewed about like funding in the cultural sector versus funding in other sectors and just how to deal with them in the best possible way. I mean, I think really what was being spoken about time and time again, and this is preparation and how when you're when you're talking to somebody publicly about your work, how if you have, you know, you might have like a, a three minute interview or something like because usually they're quite short but if in that time before before you're um, interviewed if you've time to sit down and think of you know five sentences in relation to your project that you want to get through uh, to to um to the public that you you have those five perfectly worded perfectly um uh, perfectly sensible sentences that you can rely on if you're getting a little bit tongue-tied or or, or whatever in an interview and makes you sound much more coherent and, yeah. and uh, limits any jargon I suppose and I guess it helps you make sure that you really get your message out yeah absolutely. Three, three minutes In, is such a short time to yeah yeah to explain yeah, something complex like a conservation project well yeah and and how best you know actually the presenter in the course was talking about you know time and time again when he talks to people um, things like mindfulness, you know, breathing techniques or whatever are recommended. And he was saying, he was saying time, time again, that's, that's a waste of time. You just have to be prepared and know your content. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the best possible way to explain and illuminate and highlight whatever, whatever information you're trying to get across to the public. But also actually, uh, what was quite interesting was, um, we did a lot of, um, uh, you know, uh, practice interviews and, each interview was geared towards whether it was like 
a light entertainment afternoon show or whether it was mm-hmm. six o'clock news or whether, and, and so basically to know your audience, that that's what he was saying, whether we can go with your hard hitting facts or is it something a bit more lighter um, um, for, you know, the 11 o'clock coffee show on the, on the radio or something like that <laughs> yeah. or versus the nine o'clock news. <laughs> so, you yeah. know, to kind of understand who your audience is, is also very important. Did you get any tips for dealing with more sort of hostile interviewers? I think the thing is to be honest at all times. That was flagged. Like, no, uh, to not feel like that you have to be dishonest about anything that you're working on. But like, so say to give an example, one of the questions touted was, um, why should we be investing so much money in the cultural sector when our <laughs> our, our health sector is in yeah. is in a terrible position? Or, or, you know, and the 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 obvious response to that is, um, well, absolutely, both sectors deserve funding, and both sectors are also very important. But I'm here today to talk about the cultural sector, which is important for. Um, for, from a society and a cultural perspective, and, and we would hope that people would agree with that. So, not to be defensive, I suppose, is the best way. Um, so, n- no defensive behavior and best honesty that you can possibly <laughs> portray in relation to project. So, what did you learn from the training that you think you're really going to be able to put into practice during your work? Um, okay, well, I came back quite enthused about tackling our website here in the gallery. Um, we have just reopened our um, historic buildings. Um, so we've just finished a very big um, refurbishment and development program that's gone on for you know the past seven or eight years. Um, and in tandem with that, we, we've done, you know, like a facelift of our, our hanging Um and also our our kind of public profile. So of course our website has been um, all um, updated and renewed, and um, a lot of our old content, which which I think at this point our old web had been up for oh maybe like eight eight nine years, um, had needed a bit of a facelift and had lost some freshness and had lost some direction. So it was actually a really good time um, for for me and further staff here from the gallery to to go to this workshop because it, it gave us a renewed enthusiasm for putting up projects and um, creating public interest in um, in the conservation department and the work that we do here. Um, so, yeah, I would certainly be more interested in doing more um, short videos of projects and more blogs and working more with Instagram and Twitter as well because they seem to be, from building up a public profile, the, the, the videos and seem to be much more popular than... than mm. um, you know, being long technical reports and it's more of an instant, it, it's like the, the web, I think this is one of the things that we discussed is, is, is changing where it's much more about um, short sound bites and uh, faster information and not going into a huge amount of detailed information. I suppose if people want more detailed information or more technical information, they'll be going to the professional conferences or, or going to the journals or whatever's coming up, but whereas the web is more for quicker uh, public information that that seemed how that was working from, from, that's what I took from the uh, the workshop mm-hmm. is there anything that wasn't covered that you think it would be useful to do? Uh, no to be honest I thought it was a really good valid workshop I was really pretty pleased with it and um, yeah I thought it was really helpful I came out of it thinking more conservators should do this because it actually in fact we're all we're all so passionate and, and committed and to our area and it's such a vocational area in general, we're all quite good at talking about it, and um, I think that's conveyed in in, um, in in the projects that people discuss. But it's, I mean, it's it's always good to to kind of update your skills and see what else is out there as well. So no, I, I was very pleased with the workshop. Actually, I thought it was a very good uh, refresher, and um, it just gave you a lot of a lot of good new um, new tools and information for improving our, our uh, public profile. But it's not something conservatives get any training in at all. No, absolutely And you suddenly not. get absolutely kind not. of dumped into these situations. Yeah. So Yeah. Actually, it's funny, though. I really do have to say, like, when we did our practice interviews, like, everybody was brilliant. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're all, like, I, I think because of the areas we're in and the types of training, I, I mean, I know from going right back to my, my undergrad and then my postgrad, you're always being pulled out to do interviews and talk to people. So... Mm. You know, we, we do have good, you know, hit the ground running experience with talking about our work because it's it, we, we do 
have limited funding and we do have to fight to keep our areas up there and valid. And I think a lot of the time with conservation or these kind of cultural sector areas, the preservation of these areas is down to the advocacy of the people working in them. Um, and, and we have to work quite hard to make sure that that, that, that work is kept up there at the forefront and, and ensure that that, that advocacy of, of all this, this terribly important work that we all do is, is, <laughs> is, is present. <laughs> so anyways, no, I think it's definitely a valid, a valid day for conservators because especially, I mean, you're always talking about your work and it's not, yeah. it's just nice to get some formalized training. Yeah. <laughs> um, because I've been in situations, um, where I've, um, I've done interviews and like literally, you know, 30 seconds before going in, I'm told I'm not to cover this, this, and this, come this, and, and that can throw you a little bit when you're about to go on air or when you're about to speak to somebody. And it was just about, depending on the project, people are under pressure with, with media and how to deal with it. And it was just like good to get those tools to know best how to respond to maybe difficult situations as well. As, as well. But, but we're lucky. I mean, we're lucky in conservation that we get to talk about great projects. So, we don't really have to work terribly hard to get that hook because there's already a huge amount of public interest out there mm. uh, for the type of work that we're doing. I mean, we're, you know, I think we're really fortunate in our professions in, in that capacity. And we get to talk about the really interesting, nice things where we're not talking about, you know, the terrible things that's going on in, in, <laughs> in the world politically today. <laughs> so, yeah. so, I mean, that's that's we're already starting on a positive note, I suppose. That's what I'm saying. Hmm. Well, Mona Lydon, thank you for talking to The C Word today. Okay, you're welcome. Uh, I just want to say, speaking of that kind of soundbite thing, uh, it's an interesting, not worth putting in the episode, but I just thought it was interesting that an elevator pitch is incredibly useful to have in conservation just in general, uh, because, uh, and this is ridiculous business speak, but the idea is that you need to, you need to explain something to a person while you're in a lift with them. Uh, that is an elevator pitch. That's brilliant. Yeah, but, well, I think we but, should put this in the episode, because that, that's really interesting. Oh, thanks. Um, but it's, it's because... This was something I encountered when I started my job, where I work in an organization where people mostly don't understand what a conservator is, does, or why it has any value. Mm -hmm. So you kind of need to devise a quick way of explaining what you do or why it's valuable or why anyone should care. And you you kind of need to always be armed with that, along with your business cards, (laughs) and just kind of be like, this is what I do, and this is why it's important. Uh, And it's, so that's similar to the soundbite idea, that you just kind of, it's, I know it sounds ridiculous because we all know that conservatives are important, but other people don't. So you need <laughs> to package it in a quick fire, tiny bite-sized little way. Just a little taste it. Just so people understand that I do something valuable. There you go. I think I, I was really heartened to see that there was the media training going on recently in yeah. Ireland and in ICON because it is increasingly something that conservators are being asked to do. We're, we're being kind of brought out from our underground bunkers. Yeah, <laughs> Blink- it yeah. sounds so valuable. Blinking in the sunlight like uh, <laughs> <laughs> like the underground dwelling creatures that we are. But uh, we're, we're increasingly being brought out to explain conservation and to do this kind of thing. And it's not something that is generally covered in our primary primary training as conservators and it's something that can be really hard to pick up on the job I mean you you don't want to be learning about presenting your work on television the very first time you're asked to go on television and present your work on television ideally you know ideally you'd have some sort of backup whether that's support from a PR company or training or something like that so I think it's it's really really important actually that we get these skills that we're able to make that elevator pitch that we can definitely present ourselves engagingly and demonstrate what's important about our work what can we what can we say about what we do now because i think we by doing this i mean it is a bit of a a tooting our own horn thing but i i do think having a having a podcast obviously we do this because we think it's valuable and we think that it needs to be done so that sort of it sort of goes without saying that we think it's valuable and important. But specifically, having an outlet, having a, a, a sort of platform for the discussion and something that people can tune into in and out of the discipline, kind of, I feel sort of reasserts a community and a community spirit, particularly with different age groups of conservation and within different 
disciplines with within different disciplines in the profession and issues and everything so we're not communicating conservation to the outside world but communicating it to the inside world inside world is an is a manner of outreach well so to be fair this this episode is about communicating conservation even within the profession yeah uh, so i mean It'd be ridiculous not to talk about ourselves yeah exactly <laughs> so <we're> amazing <laughs> Mm, modest too um, but i guess what i'm trying to say is that communication within the profession is also valid so yes we have a podcast thank you for listening there are people on youtube uh, there's obviously things like uh, blogging so other conserv- conservators can read about your treatments or the problems you encounter or the research that you're doing i mean there's traditional ways of communicating conservation which is the you know journal articles mm-hmm, and news, book publications yeah. and yeah. that sort of thing uh, that's also valid. I just think there are many more channels now. Uh, obviously, face-to-face can be a bit trickier because conservators are quite... Didn't, they come in clusters, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did, did we agree that was the consolidation of conservators? Is that the collective noun? Aww. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, yes. I but we don't, all come, we don't all come in groups. We can be quite uh, geographically dispersed. So uh, there are now more ways to communicate and face-to-face is, can be a rare occasion sometimes yeah absolutely um, and when it isn't at a conference is i mean not a, yeah but conferences are kind of mad and crazy i was gonna say yeah i was trying to think of a way to say it i'm terrified are gr- of conference networking because <laughs> conferences are great how are you supposed but to, scary yeah there's so many people how are you supposed to kind of you can't speak to everyone yeah how this i mean as, as someone yeah. who is slightly on the spectrum i have to say being surrounded by a really large amount of people who are all talking to each other and at the same time juggling coffee and cakes um <laughs> and it, it's it's too intense and you also have to kind of sledgehammer your way into a group because normally everyone's already yeah. clumped together uh and or you have to find other floaters like yourself where it's just like <laughs> hello i don't know anyone hi do you know anyone no okay excellent i mean it's hard it's hard work and it's terrifying but- and it's scary so it's it's valuable and awesome and uh, it's it can be fun but it's also terrifying but i don't think there's that many people who would mind you approaching them to talk to them about their presentation in more detail or to ask questions no, or no, stuff. No, that's true. Um, I've approached people completely cold, as it were, at conferences. Um, I know who they are because they're wearing badges, which is very handy. Um, Th- that is true. La- Labelling people is handy. And I've had people come and approach me after presentations I've given. And I, it's, I really appreciate that because you don't get any feedback otherwise. And it's a way to kind of extend that conversation. No, that's so, true. Uh, that's so true. I don't think you have to kind of necessarily feel you have to insinuate yourself into a group or wait to be introduced or whatever. I, I know I, I, I keep saying this. I keep banging on about it. It's fine to just email people out of the blue. It's fine to just contact people. Yes. Really, most people don't mind. Most conservators are lovely, lovely people who will help you if they can. Yes. So how about signage and stuff like that? How do we communicate conservation? That's too obvious. In <laughs> Yeah, well, we should talk about it. Sorry, sorry. Uh, in, in, in museums and heritage settings, like how do we communicate if it's not face-to-face with the public, for example? Well, I'm thinking labels and signs and stuff so- like that. I something I wanted to talk about as well is is a completely different type of outreach I think because when you think outreach you think of conservators standing next to a sign or or a, a billboard or something and greeting the public and hello this is a face to face discussion but um I've recently been doing some work and some thinking about how to communicate the issues in conservation basically as a method of preventative conservation. So this is um, gallery stuff? In galleries, okay. specifically. And there's, there's, I've done quite a few other bits and pieces at events and having a you know conservation station. And, you know, that's oh, I love that. that. I, it's so super cute. Yes. Um, but I'm interested in the use of signage as a way to protect collections. And there are a number of really nice examples. I particularly like the National Trust's use of their signs and their little labels and things that say things like, be careful with me, I'm delicate, or acids on your hands or oils on your hands can cause damage. Please don't touch me, kind of thing. Because it's cute and it's a way of it's a way of getting out bits of conservation information. That's true. Um So as context, the museum I work in has a lot of open display textile material out all the time. The galleries are invigilated, of course, but there's only so much you can see, basically, with, you know, even one or two or three or four people, you know, you can't see around all the corners all the time. 
So essentially the objects are touched. We know they are and we're trying to prevent it or do more to communicate not touching, you know. It's, and it's the, interesting that you say that because I... I was recently at World Museum in Liverpool and they have a lovely, lovely, lovely Egyptian exhibition now. Oh, it's so lovely. Uh, But I noticed that as soon as there's an absence of a sign saying, please don't touch me, people just go for it. People people love touching things because they had some great statues, um, obviously stone and stuff. I mean we only worry so much about stone usually depending mm-hmm. on what the object mm-hmm. is but they had some and they were clearly on a plinth they were clearly inset a bit so mm-hmm. i felt like everything subtly tried to say yeah it's here the option is there but we're not encouraging it yeah but at the same time there was nothing saying don't yeah. oh and people went up to that and oh they really went for it it wasn't like a little oh i'm touching <laughs> it it was i'm smoothing my hands all over this <laughs> it was like oh <laughs> i just stood in a corner going hmm that's that's it because i think we're uh, i've heard a lot recently in loads of different from loads of different sources we don't want to use negative language don't say no which i think is a hilarious hilarious sentence (laughs) no use the word no Um, (laughs) and i've that's basically the that's the struggle Mm. how do you communicate don't fucking touch the things Without it sounding either negative or aggressive or patronizing or, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, because obviously we know not to touch the things. But if people are, you know, I've, in previous museums, I've, I've said to people, please don't climb on that. Or I'm sorry, it's, it's very unsafe for you to be doing that. Or please, we, we ask you not to touch this. Yeah. And the response is literally always, I didn't see a sign. Oh, yeah. As it, you know, does that mean we have to have signs? Because if if museums are trying yeah. to move away from having do not touch signs in their galleries, then that's going to be constant. And it, that frustrates me. So the tiny round over. Um, <laughs> and I'll now talk about the what I've been proactively trying to do. Yes. <laughs> um, basically, in a way, copying the kind of ideas that, that the National Trust have of providing a bit of information. And I, of course, I don't say that this is uh, the only example of um, this sort of strategy use, but it's a nice example because I've the number of different National Trust properties I've been in tend to use the same sort of um, methods and I find it really nice kind of blanket communication. So providing a bit of information about why um, and basically you still get to say no and don't, but you sort of fluff around it and make put the, put the <laughs> negative words the evil negative words in context so people feel like they're being taught or feel like they are gaining information as well as receiving an instruction not to do something so basically i've just been writing um, a series of labels based specifically on an object on each, or each object so trying to pick a feature of the object that is either delicate or going to be ruined or something and saying have you noticed this this will happen to this if you do this kind of thing and or this will get worse or this is like this or this bit's fragile or you know have you noticed kind of thing um to try and use active language as a way of getting people to think about what they're doing and to think about their own behavior in terms of the life's the, uh, the lifetime of the object how many words like so how short are they this is the i mean i should have brought along some examples um because people get bored very easily yeah well and i think the i'm in a good position that the space that i have to fill is quite large and i hope to use imagery as well will there still be the image of do not touch like the hand crossed out or oh well probably <laughs> i no, I, I mean I'm, I'm genuinely curious because i know that people are very visual so if they they might be more likely to read the text if there is a visual clue to go with it this is what i'm thinking yeah so i have yet to do i don't i don't, I don't want to influence what you're doing sorry no 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 I, I have yet to design that sort of imagery but it's definitely that's definitely on the list of things so i'm trying to basically make make it a habit to communicate bits of conservation information about each object Mm. as a way of stopping people from touching stuff, basically. I mean, my concerns are, uh, as we've already discussed, is it patronising what I'm saying? You know, Mm. saying things like, this is fragile. We ask you not to touch because of these reasons. You know, is that the kind of thing that people just go, you know, whatever, 
or that's insulting or I get people's backs up. I don't want to do that. Um, are things too long-winded, as you say? Will they just stop reading? Are you, um, you going to do like a little pilot with this where you ask like 10 members of the public or, you know, like, what do you think of this? Um, that's an in- that is an interesting idea. I had not thought to because I feel like I'm running out of time for yeah, when sorry. I have to start I know. this. We're but always short on time. That is a really good idea. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be interested to see what people do actually think of it and have a, a way of allowing people to feed back. The thing I'm mainly concerned about is that <laughs> it'll have the opposite effect and actually pointing out areas of an object that is delicate will make people uh, go, ooh, I'm going to poke at that to see. You the, know? Re- the reverse psychology yeah. effect. Oh, it says not to touch it. I must touch it now. Well, to be honest, yeah. sometimes I feel like that. I, I mean, maybe this is the case with some people, but I suppose people who will touch Do not an object press the after they've been... O- yeah, exactly. Mm. People who will touch an object after they've been asked not to will probably touch it anyway, regardless. Yeah. So maybe I'm overthinking it. Maybe. Uh, if, if any listener has any input, then, you know, send some ideas. Yeah, what, have you, what have you Or if you've on? seen good examples. Yeah. I'm Let up for examples. I'm up for language use. One of the things is that I'm particularly interested in is language use and what people respond to using words like delicate and fragile and dusty and, you know, dirty, oily. That's another thing. And another thing. How do I say the oils on your hands or your hands aren't as clean as you think they are? That kind of thing. Oh, you know, yeah, without, without being offensive. Yeah. <laughs> got dirty hands you don't, don't even touch know the it things you're disgusting you know yeah. yeah quite not this isn't so much about science but about can the visual effect i guess i quite like what they do in some historic properties which is they put like a pine cone or that. a thistle on a seat just to signal that. do not sit here i think it's really really uh, nice it's really that. elegant yeah. yeah i love that it's very it's very kind of gentle and yeah. it's not a giant sign but yeah. it's it's the like Clearly, you wouldn't want to sit on that, right? Yeah. That's the reason it's there. Think yeah. about it. Think about it. It's sort of gently humorous, particularly the thistle. <laughs> yes. It's just I like really the sweet. Yeah. <laughs> Today, I'm reviewing something a little bit different. It's a book called The Interactive Past Archaeology, Heritage, and Video Games. It's edited by, and I'm so sorry I get this wrong, Mol Arise van de Meulebroeke. Boom and Polytopolos, and is published by Sidestone Press. It might seem a little odd to talk about heritage in video games, but if you stop and think about it, it's really just about public image and a kind of outreach. How do people experience archaeology and heritage virtually? Whether they're building monuments in Minecraft or revealing excavated artifacts in a minigame on their smartphones, these are encounters with the past or a representation of the past. It could be the player's first experience with the notion of archaeology, or it could be one of many ways they already engage with heritage. I'm genuinely impressed with this book because it's both academic and fun. The authors of the various papers come from both the heritage sector and the game development industry, and they delve into their research with great enthusiasm. The book is divided into several parts, covering overarching subjects such as ethics, game design, and games as a form of outreach. The book even addresses how to preserve games themselves and how gaming can be incorporated into exhibitions, which is something we've actually talked about here on the podcast before. There are so many examples of great storytelling in this book, games describing other cultures and mythologies, strategic games allowing players an insight into ancient societies, and ones which allow people to collect artifacts and piece together a narrative, not entirely unlike the detective work that goes into actual archaeology and curatorship off-screen. Tricky questions are also addressed in the various chapters. How do we address copyright of a game if part of it was developed by an indigenous community group? Do we worry about representing looting in illegal trading games? Each chapter ends with the standard bibliography we're all accustomed to, and also a ludography with the video games referenced. While many of these are already familiar to me in some form, I find myself wanting to have a go at some of these games, now that I've read about them in a more anthropological manner. I think I can safely say that games about the past were influential on me as a kid. I played games like Pharaoh for hours on end, and it's definitely one of the reasons I became obsessed with Egyptology. My undergraduate degree was in heritage studies, so I know a thing or two about this kind of literature, 
And this is hands down one of the best heritage books I've ever read. I thoroughly recommend it to anyone interested in heritage, archaeology and or video games. It's a brilliant and diverse read and it really has a little bit of something for everyone. My only complaint is that museums didn't feature particularly in the mixture, but then maybe there's just not very many games set in that kind of environment. Although I can think of at least one example. This is a paperback edition with 235 pages and full-colour illustrations. I absolutely love the cover artwork. You can purchase this book in the UK from Oxbow Books for £40 or as an e-book from Sidestone Press directly for around €10. You can also, astonishingly, read it online for free. Anyway, thanks very much to Oxbow Books for sending us a copy. Dear Jane, Conservatives always seem to say they're quirky and odd. I've been thinking about joining your ranks, but my concern is, am I just too normal to be a Conservative? Signed, Emma. Emma, you ask me if you're too normal to be a Conservative, and I admit, I know almost nothing about you, but never let the lack of data stop an opinion. So, are you too normal to be a Conservative? What I know about you, Emma, is that you like to be called Emma and that you listen to or are aware of the C-Word podcast. I'm afraid I'm going to have to just work from that basis. So, are you too normal to be a conservator? I think the only thing that I can suggest to you in this situation is to get a bit closer to conservators. Find out what they are and what they do. You're listening to the podcast already. But are you wearing knitwear? And is it purple? Apparently we do allow other colours in knitwear. But you've also found out from listening to the podcast that conservatives have had fascination with the smells of dust and adhesives and old books. Do you have any such fascinations? Do you like the smells of old things? Are you just ever so slightly obsessed with how things work, what they're made of? Are you really keen to get your hands onto some of the old stuff? Do you have a love of the heritage or the culture that you just can't quite shift? When you go to a museum, do you spend ages looking at one thing? Are you looking around to see how the museum works? I can't answer these questions, Emma, but perhaps you could get involved with a conservator, volunteer somewhere, spend a little bit of time with them, perhaps join Icon as a supporter or a professional body where you live if you're not in the UK. Perhaps go to a conference and see what they're talking about. One of the ways that people define normality is in relationship to the people around them. So why not get a bit more involved with conservation practice by volunteering in a studio or workshop? Spending some time with the conservators, you'll start to discover whether you share their uh, interests and fascinations. Whether you're gripped by the minutiae of exactly where something should be sitting to make something look just so, not perfect, but not neglected. If you spend time involved in conservation, whether through training, volunteering or helping, I'm sure that you'll do two very important things. The first thing is that you'll help contribute to the conservation of the cultural heritage of where you live. And the other thing is that you will grow as a person yourself. Spending time with doing conservation means that you'll be able to practice your hand-eye coordination, your fine motor skills. You might be able to do some colour matching. You'll learn about team working, project management, resource allocation, working with clients, communication and a whole range of other skills. That should you decide to leave conservation at the end of your experiment, I'm sure you'll find absolutely invaluable. So, if you get involved with the Conservatives, you can look around, see yourselves amongst us and say... Am I normal? Do I fit in? If the answer is yes, we'd love to have you. Over and out. And now it's time for some comments, questions and corrections. I just wanted to uh, give a shout out to the people who got back to me about uh, ways of dealing with my masking tape problem, uh, especially Rebecca. That was very helpful. Thanks very much. And also I wanted to give a shout out to Justine, uh, who uh, wrote in to us about freelancing and how the gig economy can actually be very beneficial to some people. And there are object conservators out there who are freelance and who are successful. It's not all bleak and bad. 
And that is a very good point. I can't go into detail about the example she gave me because I don't have permission to talk about them. But uh, there are sunshine stories and basically people shouldn't feel discouraged just because they're object conservators. Uh, there is a place for you in the freelance word, world, basically. Uh, so thanks very much for sharing that and uh, hope you keep listening, Justine. And yes, I think that's. I'd like to do a little shout out to Samantha who got who got back to us about um, the modern materials episode and emerging professionals episodes, um, and particularly is slash was a belly dancer. Yeah, so, you have found. Hi! You the, found another belly dancing conservator. another belly dancing conservator. I absolutely encourage you to get back to classes. Do it. That, that is fun. a Venn diagram that is rare. Yeah. <laughs> conservators. So belly thank you so much for your email. That was really, really nice. It put a big smile on my face. Yeah. Again, we don't, we don't give shout outs to everyone who emails us. Cause actually, we get a surprising amount of emails. Um, thanks very much. We love hearing from you. Um, and please know that we do read everything. Please don't be discouraged, even if we take a while to respond. Because, you know, we all, we all work on top of this and it takes us a while to get back to you sometimes but we do read everything that you send in and thanks very much and we do love hearing from you so keep emailing and tweeting and all that stuff um yeah basically thanks thanks for listening we're the c word and you've been listening to christina rosaic chloe rumsey and me jenna mathiason join us next time for an episode about food in the meantime, check out our website at theseaword.show, tweet us at theseawordpodcast, or simply email us on theseawordpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Music, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production.